0: Hello and thanks for joining us for the April 2017 episode of the Poverty Research and Policy podcast from the Institute for Research in Poverty at the University of Wisconsin, Madison. I'm Dave Chancellor. For this episode, I had the privilege of interviewing Harry Brighouse, who's a professor of philosophy and the Carol Dixon-Bascom professor of the humanities here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's a faculty affiliate of IRP and gave a talk at IRP's weekly seminar series this past fall on what it costs to raise a child, which drew on work he did with Adam Swift for their book called Family Values, The Ethics of Parent-Child Relationships. In our interview, Professor Brighouse talked about how the role of the family matters when we think about the cost of raising a child, and what all of this means for poverty policy. But when we first began talking, I asked him a broader question about what philosophers can do for social scientists who study poverty.
1: So there are, there are two kind of metaphors for philosophy, right? One is as, the, as an underlaborer, and I think you know Locke had this idea of philosophy is an underlaborer for the sciences. Basically, we do this conceptual work so that you know what it is you're talking about. And then you actually go and talk about it and you find things out. And then the other the other metaphor is from my friend Tony Layden, who sort of thinks of philosophers as being like optometrists. So they give you a kind of a different lens, a different focus, a different way of seeing things. And so you see what it is you're studying slightly different, differently. You see a different um, problem than the problem you might have seen if you'd carried on seeing things the same way. So the, the thing that I think moral and political philosophers, which is what I am, can do for social scientists is think rigorously about the value questions and offer resources for social scientists to do that to do that rigorous thinking. And I think when you do that, you will see slightly different problems than if you're sort of a lot of social science training you kind of become really good at some method and then you look for things to apply the method to and sometimes do that really excitingly and well but those problems are not necessarily the problems that you would be approaching if um, if you were thinking in value terms
0: Brighel says philosophy can help us think about big-picture goals, guiding research and policy, and as an example, he says we might look at the way we study
1: charter schools. I've done a lot of work on charter schools, and if you think about high-commitment charter schools, which focus on children, in very disadvantaged children in urban areas, and try to serve those children, there's an enormous amount of research about the effects of those schools on those children, and But the but the research tends to be done in terms of the goals that those charter schools actually have. So the charter schools say, we're going to send everybody to college. And so then the research is, do they send everyone to college? Well, maybe sending everybody to college isn't the right goal, which doesn't mean that the charter schools are doing the wrong thing. It may be that whatever they're actually doing better meets the goal, the, the right goal than um sending everyone to college, there's very little research at all on the effects of those schools on the schools with which they compete or you know in, in in the same ecosystem as them um and i w if you care about disadvantaged kids, you don't just care about the disadvantaged kids who attend the charter schools, you care about disadvantaged kids who don't attend the charter schools. There's very little research on the effects of those schools, however successful they are with the kids that they teach on the kids who don't attend them I'm completely open to the possibility that those effects are good they might be bad but having a sort of good normative framework helps you to see what what goals you should be holding the charter schools to and who it is that you should be doing the research on
0: in part, Brighouse's book with Swift does just this. It focuses on the way we think about the big-picture goals of raising children and the role of the family in trying to achieve those goals.
1: One part of it is not very controversial, I think, which is that it the parent-child relationship, having a parent, is good for children. So it's good for children um, because it contributes to their developmental uh, needs, but it also enables them to have kind of a daily lived experience that's valuable in a way that we think is not sustainable by other kinds of institutions you know without the family other other institutions just can't provide those goods it's also valuable for adults so we think adults get tremendous uh, value from and and tremendous well-being from uh, meeting the challenge The very complex challenge that is overseeing a child's development especially because when you with children the aim is not it's not like a pet the aim is not to just make them happy in fact often the aim is to do things which you know are going to make them unhappy in the moment because what you're trying to do is you're trying to get them to a point where they can be independent of you and so you it's not the kind of relationship where you're loving the being and the being is loving you and that's the end of it it's like you're loving the being you know you're loving the child and the child might or might not love you depending on uh exactly what's going on um but you want to get to your aim is to get it to the point where it can live without you and can reject you if it wants to Raising a
0: child so that they can live without you is a complex challenge, and Brickhouse says there are sort of two main themes or questions we can think about in trying to understand that challenge.
1: One is about, if you like, the relationship between the family and the world. So parents pass on advantages to their children, which enable those children to compete better in a competitive society and compete better in a way that harms other people. It might also benefit other people, but immediately if you're competing for a job and there's only one job you want to be better you know you want to be better equipped than the other you know than the next person in the line for the job um and that person loses out because they don't get the job uh so to what extent and in what ways is it okay for parents to confer those advantages on their children um knowing that in conferring advantages on their children um you're going to be giving them a leg up in competition with other people. And there's also an opportunity cost because you could be conferring advantage on other children who are not your own and who are worse off than your own. So that's one set of questions. And then the other set of questions is about shaping the children's values. To what extent is it okay to... uh, In general, in liberal societies, we think it's not okay for adults to shape one another's values you can argue with one another and you can sort of give people reasons for having different values than they do but you don't get authority over uh, their value shaping environment but with children you do we think that's an inevitable part of the family but we also think there are limits on what parents may legitimately do to shape their children's values.
0: Professor Brighouse says many parents face challenges when it comes to passing on advantages or values to their children that can ultimately help them succeed.
1: When you come into the real world, away from philosophy, you see a world in which lots of the conditions that you might sort of ideally want are not present. And in particular, we see that... uh, some people are raising their children a, a significant swathe of people in the US, you know, somewhere between 20, 25, maybe even more uh, percent of people are raising their children in circumstances in which they're, which are extremely challenging um, and in which they don't necessarily have the resources that they would, that you would want them to have in order to be able to raise their child successfully. That means... The child being able to, uh, well, what I did in a talk was I sort of gave some conditions, certain capabilities that you want a child to have by the time they reach adulthood, uh, the capability um, to uh, get a non-low-wage job, um, capability to um, avoid high-interest debt, capability to avoid being involved in the criminal justice system on the wrong side, and the capability uh, to defer um, biological parenthood until you can raise a child so that they can meet these conditions themselves. So you want to develop those capabilities in children. We make it very, very difficult to to develop those capabilities for certain parts of our population.
0: Of course, it takes resources to raise and develop these capabilities in children. But Brighel says the question of how much it costs or what a reasonable level of resources would look like is actually something quite different from what's usually considered.
1: When you look at the USDA website and it, you ask how much it costs to raise a child, they just tell you how much people spend on their children, which doesn't tell you how much it costs to raise a child if you have a normative standard. And what I try to do with the capabilities is sort of present a normative standard um, so that you can then use that standard to ask okay what would it cost to raise a child to succeed in that way and to do so without having to make huge personal sacrifices as a parent without sort of ruining your own life um, why does that matter it matters because in a decent successful society we'd want everybody to be in those conditions um, and, it, and if that's an aim of public policy it matters because, because that helps you think about what resources you need uh, to provide what kind of structure you need to set up for people to be able to do that.
0: In thinking about parents' investments in their children, if we go back to Brighouse and Swift's first question about families' relationship to the world, we can see that there's this issue of distributive justice or fairness at work here.
1: There's a very uh, long tradition in political thought um, of which goes back to Plato, in fact, in a way, um, of thinking of the family as being at odds with distributive justice. And distributive justice it, uh, requires that we redistribute opportunities. It requires that we maybe redistribute resources beyond that. Um, and the family stands in the way of that. So one, because and it stands in the way of that, because of the kinds of intimate interactions that parents have with their children, and the kinds of permissions they feel with respect to their children, so that they can um, uh, advantage their children, or 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 so that they can do things which, in fact, although well-willed, end up disadvantaging disadvantaging their children. There are two standard in that tradition of thinking there are two kind of reactions if you like and so one is the conservative reaction which says well a family is really important so forget about distributive justice it stands in the way of distributive justice too bad for distributive justice and we've got a lot of sympathy with that view at Swift and I and then the other response is sort of the response of somebody like Alexandra Kollontai or the, the communists of the late 19th early 20th century which is well the family stands in the way of justice, and the family's terrible. Let's get rid of the family, right? And then we can just have justice. And, our, and you know, we don't have sympathy with that view about the family, but we do have sympathy with that view about justice. We think justice really matters. Our innovation, I think, sort of the one of the innovations of the book is to think about the family in a different way and say the family is part of justice, and part of what distributive justice requires is that we enable um, people to enjoy and succeed in family life.
0: Brighouse says that, for example, a government that's trying to make society more just should understand that in doing so, it's also better enabling parents to meet their goals in relation
1: to their children by helping create
0: the conditions for families to succeed.
1: That matters is particularly for you know poverty because poverty is just a condition which makes family life much harder to succeed in it's a condition which um you know i, I sort of well, it's not funny but you know i the poor have less of lots of things the poor have less money obviously they've less education they've less safety in their communities um they've less high quality health uh care they've less Uh, good public health provision typically Um, they tend to live in uh, neighborhoods or areas which are more polluted which are um, you know we've got the example of flint where you know the water isn't even properly um, treated but they've more of one thing which is stress and stress is toxic and relieving poverty well let's put it stress is toxic it's toxic to family relationships it's toxic toxic to health it's toxic to the ability to uh benefit from education um and relieving poverty re- lessens that toxicity it lessens stress that's why re- that's why poverty is bad because of all these things and that's why relieving poverty is good um it, enjoys, it enables people to get more out of their lives, but especially as it enables people to be more successful in their family life. That is, it enables children to grow and develop more successfully. It reduces the amount of sacrifice that parents have to make in order to ensure that their children grow and develop successfully. And it makes their daily lived experience within the family um, a more fruitful, more flourishing, more enjoyable one.
0: Thanks to Harry Brighouse for taking the time to talk to us. If you want to learn more about this work, check out Brighouse and Swift's book, Family Values, The Ethics of Parent-Child Relationships, from Princeton University Press. This podcast was supported as part of a grant from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Office of the Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation, but its contents don't necessarily represent the opinions or policies of that office or any other agency of the federal government or the Institute for Research on Poverty. Thanks for listening. To catch new episodes of the Poverty Research and Policy Podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcast app. You can find all of our past episodes on the Institute for Research and Poverty website.